Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We're glad that you are spending the Lord's Day here with us, um, singing songs of worship, uh, having opportunities to greet one another, to fellowship, and now to be gathered around God's Word, just to hear a word um, from the Scriptures. We're thankful that you are here, and uh, today is the first Sunday of the month, which is um, the Sunday we designate uh, to celebrate the Lord's table. And so at the conclusion of our message time, we will transition into a time of communion. And so um, uh, we just want to make you aware of that. Um, November always marks a special um, uh, month in our preaching calendar. November is what we usually designate as our family focus month, and it's because we do something thematic, something that focuses on either the core family, right, like our moms and dads or our relationships with our kids or something like that, or our church family, meaning like uh, something to do with our, our one anotherings, etc. And other times, just kind of general, um, helpful. Uh, issues that we want to address as a church and as a church family. And um, the elders thought it might be helpful to us uh, in light of uh, um, just where our world is at um, to think about uh, the idea of authority. And so for the month of November, uh, we will be talking about good authority, right? And that's why it says authority, good and bad. That's kind of our theme um, for the month of November. We live in a time, right, where the very idea of authority is suspect, right? I'd be shocked if you don't know somebody that, uh, that might have attended church or maybe is still attending church or is looking for a church that feels at least like, you know, they have a difficult time trusting in church authority, right? That, that's the way that we think about authority. It's not just the, the church, but it's in, in home life, it's in our workplace. It's in our, it's in our governing authorities, right? The misuse of authority, which we can call abuse, is everywhere. It's in our news, right, regularly. It's, uh, it's in, maybe it's potentially in your own home, but it's, it affects us all. And we have the temptation to kind of think, well, if some authority is bad, then all authority is bad. And what we think that we need is a complete lack of authority. And it's because we have seen when authority runs amok, when it's gone sour, when it's touched by greed, ambition, and everything that is self-serving. We don't have to look far, right, to find examples of a bad abuse of authority. And we see the fallout of that in terms of abusive authorities in our families, abusive authorities in our relationships, abusive rela uh, authority, right? It use, it, the abuse of authority even in our communities and our human relationships. And yet at the same time, as we've been studying uh, in, our, in our normal um, preaching schedule, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians and we are right in the middle of the household codes Commands for, for wives to submit to their own husbands, Christian husbands, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So clearly, Scripture seems to assume that there is a form of authority that looks different from all the bad forms that we see around us. And so that's our task. That's our desire. This November, at least, to address authority good and authority bad. We, we want to see what God's Word says about good authority and what authority should look like, how it should impact us, and why God has given it to us. And we also want to address what happens when authority goes bad, when it hurts, injures, steals, and takes, right? We want to look at both of those things. And praise the Lord, I get the first one, the easiest one, right? Um, I'm talking about good authority um, and that Good authority is God's authority. God's good authority for us. Um, the passage, and, and just so that we're clear, um, uh, you'll see that I, I'm not expositing the passage as I normally would. In fact, it is the passage is kind of a structural springboard, an example to think about how God has deemed his authority for us. And so if you break it down in just two simple segments, it would be that God grants 
human authority. And by grants, I want to underline that word. God is the source of any kind of human authority. But secondly, we want to speak of good authority and say that God, his intention is to bless humanity with good authority. He blesses good authority. And so with that, let me read us the passage. Um, I'll set it up for you a little bit because I'm not going to say too much about the background. But it's, uh, you'll read it as soon as, uh, as soon as we read it. You'll kind of recognize the background that it is the last words of David. And he speaks of what it means that God has appointed him, right, with the authority to be a king. And how that, that good authority exercised well is intended to bless God's people. 2 Samuel is our passage, chapter 23, towards the end of 2 Samuel and towards the end of David's life. And this, these are his words as penned in Scripture, starting in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, Um, to take of the Lord's table, we are asking that your spirit might teach us from your word what it means that you are good. Good in what you give us, certainly, but good even in the administration of this universe, that you have sent your own son to take our place in the death that we deserve. So we celebrate that at the Lord's table. Lord, that we might remember that your authority is absolute, but is always good. And that whatever authority we have received by stewardship, that we ought to dispense that authority in ways that mirror yours. That is touched by love, by care, by sacrifice, by all those things, Lord, that we find so lacking in human authority. Lord, help us not to be like the pagan world, lording it down on all those who are under us. But teach us, Lord, to exemplify our Savior, to exemplify you, our Heavenly Father, who uses and exercises his power and and, and all his sovereignty for our good. Lord, we praise you for good authority. Teach us what that looks like, what that means so that we might exalt in it, so we might breathe it in, and we might try to live it out. With all of our imperfections, we know we'll fail, Lord, but we ask for your enablement to shed a testimony of not just victory and good authority, but of graciousness, of forgiveness, and of willingness to humbly confess and to make things right. We praise you for all that you grant to us and for the infinite grace of your gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> One of the interesting things that happened in terms of, uh, um, there have been several famous people that have passed away this week. One was Coach Bobby Knight. If you guys aren't familiar with Coach Bobby Knight, it's because you're not over 40, right? Um, he, was a, he was a college coach from a generation back. Coach of the Indiana Hoosiers. In fact, they made a movie about like his, uh, his you know, unexpected run to an NCAA basketball championship way back in the day. He was a phenomenal coach if you look at his stat lines and his accomplishments and what he has done. He excelled in whatever program he built up. He was a phenomenal coach in terms of what he could do. But he was mean. What, he, what you might remember about Bobby Knight is that he famously choked one of his players, right? Um, and that was, you know, that was caught by other people and got out to the media. Then in the game, he threw a chair across the entire floor out of anger because his players weren't playing well. There are several times as he's subbing out a player because he's just not on his game, he would slap him in the head or he would push him, right? Or he would, he would physically do something to him. His, his exercise of authority was effective, catch that, right? 
He was a winning coach. He won, he won an NCAA championship. His authority was effective, but I would argue it wasn't good. That's the world that we live in, right? I'm giving you kind of a, a third party, kind of distant example because you yourself probably have an example that's much nearer to home. It may even be in your home. It may be the abusive authority that you have seen, right, modeled in a parent or in, in, in older siblings or, or perhaps in your workplace or in school or amongst your friends. Uh, you have seen the abuse of authority. And if I asked you to give examples, I think we would run out of time for all the examples that you would have. But the question is, is that what God intended authority to be? Because that's certainly not God's authority. And the answer, I think, in 2 Samuel 23, right, blessed from the hand of David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, is a view into God's good authority granted to us, how God's good authority is for us. And if we listen well, especially as those that are willing to submit under the authority of God's word, we might, we might reclaim what is good authority, we might think better about how to, how to conduct ourselves if we have a position of authority over others in a way that expresses and looks like, right, who God is. I mean, if you think about it, we just finished last week talking about a husband's leadership in his home, how a Christian husband, what does his leadership look like? His leadership looks like the love of Christ. It exemplifies the gospel. That's what we want. That's what we need to understand. That's what I think honors the Lord and looks much more like our Savior Jesus Christ and much less like those in authority who are abusive, mean, and are ultimately using authority for selfish gain. But take a look at our, our first point in verses 1 to 3. 2 Samuel 23, David says, These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And the first thing I want to make a point of is that God is the one that anoints rulers. I mean, we get that, like, more particularly here in, verses, uh, um, uh, in verse 1, you have this, uh, this designation that God is the one that appoints this ruler, right? King David. But beyond that, I think we can extrapolate that God is the one that grants any kind of rulership, any kind of authority. Human authority is derivative. It comes from the absolute authority that is God. I'll say a few words about that in a moment, but I, I think we got to at least explain some of these things that David says um, about himself, because he designates himself in four ways. And as he does that in verse one, I find it interesting that his designations or his descriptions about himself, it's not about what he accomplished or what he did. David, David accomplished a lot. In fact, he would become the king that is such a good king that when it comes to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, he becomes the standard. And every king of Judah, every king of the northern kingdom of Israel, they'll be measured against David. And every king, you know, it'll say, but he did, right, he did not live or, or he did not serve as, as David, his king or his father did, right? He did not do as David did. Like, David becomes the standard bearer of good kings, so he, he could have talked about how he was so accomplished. He could have looked at his record. He could have said, look at my stat line. I'm a first ballot Hall of Famer. Get me in there, right? He doesn't. Instead, he talks in four terms about his relationship to God Almighty. The first thing he says, I mean, he says it's an oracle of David, meaning that it's a word of revelation that God has given to him. He identifies himself as the son of Jesse. That's not even one of the things that I want to talk about, right? He's just designating which David this is. This is David's son of Jesse. He says first, this is the oracle of the man who was raised on high. So the first thing he says is that he has been lifted up. That's what that literally means. And it implies that he has been lifted up to a position of great authority by someone else. Remember, David was the youngest 
amongst his brothers. He was the shepherd boy. He was still keeping watch over the sheep while his brothers were off at war. He is the lowest. And when Samuel the prophet, right, the one who is the author of First and Second Samuel, when he, is, when he is told by God that one of the sons of Jesse will be the next king, and he looks at each one, he says, certainly this guy, look at this guy's frame, man. This guy looking good, right? No, that's not the one. How about this guy? This guy is like, he's like, he looks sharp. He answers clearly, right? This guy is, no, he's not the one. And down the line, and at some point, Samuel's like, dude, do you have any more sons? We ran out. And he says, well, I have this kid. He's taking care of the dogs, right? The sheep. And he comes in. And that's the one that God has chosen. And David recognizes that. That whatever authority, whatever position of power he has ever been given, it is because God is the one that has raised him up. That has lifted him up out of nothing to rule all of God's people. The second designation is right after that. He is the man who was raised on high. Secondly, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Anointed is a power-packed term in the Old Testament. Right? The Hebrew word for anointed is the word that we anglicize into Messiah, right? Mishayach in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew, we, we just say Messiah. That's what anointed that, that word is. It is to say that there is one that has been chosen by God to be a ruler, to be a deliverer, to be a redeemer, a caretaker for God's people. And the fact that God has anointed David to be the king comes with the promise, a Davidic promise, right? That God would bring a son of David that would reign on the throne forever and that is anointed. He is the anointed, the Messiah, who would deliver his people from their sins. So already you have these designations that are remarkable, but that have nothing to do with David's own accomplishment. He is a man who has been raised on a high. He is a man that has been anointed to rule. And he's the God, he's been anointed by the God of Jacob. That's an interesting one. Because he, it wouldn't be weird if he had said, um, by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that's Yahweh. That, that would make sense. It's a designation for the God of the Old Testament scriptures. It wouldn't be weird if he said, uh, he's the God of Israel. That would make sense as well. But he chooses Jacob, the name of the patriarch, before it is changed to Israel. You guys know that, right? His name is Jacob, and it means something like heel snatcher. It implies that he's a shysty individual, that he is likely to turn on you and betray you, right? That's his name. And God changes his name and says that you will strive with God or against God. The preposition isn't clear in the name, but that you will strive with or against God, and that name is Israel. He has 12 sons. They're the 12, tri the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is Israel. But he chooses the earlier name, Jacob. I think what he's implying here is that the God of Jacob, the God that could transform a shysty, right, and a serper. You remember he tricked his, his older brother, his older twin brother, out of his birthright and then out of his blessing, had to flee because his older brother said, I'm going to kill you as soon as dad's dead, right? right? So all of that, like his usurper nature, his trickster nature, that is all captured in his name. And he is the God of that Jacob who is transformed to Israel. And I think, I think his emphasis, even in that title, is to suggest that I have been anointed by the God who can transform. And I might not have been a trickster transformed right, into a patriarch, but I was just a lowly kid, right? A shepherd boy. And here I am, raising up a nation, um, worshiping and fearing the Lord. The final designation he gives is a sweet psalmist of Israel. That is just sweet. That is just cool, right? That's him saying, like, these are all the things that God has done. He has lifted me up. He has made me a ruler. He has anointed me, right? He is the God that has transformed, and he continues to transform, and he has transformed me. And I am Israel's beloved singer, right? Uh, I think the NIV translates it that way, Israel's beloved singer. That, that sounds a little too braggart, right? And so I think the ESV chooses the sweet psalmist 
of Israel. It's an excellent designation. His point is that he's a worshiper. That, that of all the authority that is granted to him, he is still just a worshiper of this God who has been so, so good to him. And, and let, let's, let's be plain. Scripture makes it plain. David was not always a good king. All right? There, there's times when he used political manipulation, right? He had an affair with Bathsheba. He contrives and uh, conspires to have her husband killed. I mean, he does some stuff that is not, you know, so un, unsurprising. It's not so surprising if you think about earthly kings, pagan kings, unbelieving kings, and masters that abuse. He has done some of those things. And if we are honest with ourselves, in whatever situation of authority God has granted to us, there have been times when you have done some of those things, where you've taken advantage for your own advantage, right? And the power, the rule, the authority that God has graced upon you. And whether that you're a parent, whether you're a husband, whether you're a boss or a teacher or a coach or whatever you might be, there's opportunities for us to sin, and David was not that different. The point is simply this, though. God anoints rulers. God anoints rulers. God appoints whoever receives authority. He is the singular authority. He's the only true power and rule in the universe. So all other authority, all other human authority is derivative from his. That's what I mean by God anoints uh, rulers, or earlier in, the, in point one, God grants human authority. God's the one that gives authority. He allows even wicked men to come up into power for his, uh, for his eternal purposes, right? He, he allows uh, good men to, to be in places of, of position of power to bless people. He, he is the one that designates who has authority and who doesn't. He is the absolute authority. Our authority is relative, limited, and derived from him. A good place to look for that, at least in terms of um, human governing authority, is Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Look at the second part, which is the part I want to underline in our minds. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, right? Written in a time when the earthly authority was not exactly friendly to the Christian faith. Written in a time when pagans ran the world. In fact, we're talking about empires, not, not about small kingdoms and mayors or senators, right? We're talking about the entire world under the dictatorship of powers and abilities of militia, all of it self-centered, abusive, and oppressive in nature. So this is, this is a statement of astounding right, sovereignty that God, he, in his authority, he grants authority to all those that are in authority. God decrees rule. He decrees human authority. It's God's to give. Well, how do we know that, right? How do we know that this is all from the Lord? Well, it's David knows because not only does God anoint rulers, but God's the one that decrees, decrees his rule. See, the second part, and, and this is an emphasis on the fact that this is an oracle, right? But if you look at verses two and three, um, God decrees human rule. God is absolute in his authority. He grants limited authority to human beings. And, and David says he knows that his authority has been granted by God because the Lord has said so, because the Lord has inspired him to speak about it. And so verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. In other words, he is inspiring me to speak his word, his decree. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So the God of Israel, right, the God who is the sovereign ruler over all of Israel, who is the rock of Israel, meaning that he is, he is the, the, the foundation. He can be stood upon. He can be built upon. That God has spoken to me what human authority is meant to be. I love the fact that David puts emphasis 
Um, he puts emphasis on the fact that, that his authority to rule as Israel's great king is not self-determined, hasn't been won, hasn't been achieved in his own power. His, his ability, his authority to rule as Israel's great king was an act of God. And that, that, that's what God's word is revealing here. So his emphasis, and God is speaking through me, this oracle, to tell you what it looks like for good, for good kingly authority over the nation of Israel, we can apply that to saying that God's great and absolute good authority is vested to human beings for our flourishing, so that we might do well, so that those that are under our authority feel the goodness, not of just of the human authority, but of the God who is behind it all. That's what, that's what authority is meant to be. Let's define some terms so that we're kind of clear on what we're talking about. Um, we sometimes use the term sovereignty, right? God's sovereignty um, as a way of expressing that God is in control of all events. That's true. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denying that as a decent definition or understanding. Um, but when we say, oh, God is sovereign, we usually mean that he's the authority behind whatever is happening and whatever is to happen next. So something bad happens, you know? Um, you know, uh, I, I didn't get that job. And we just kind of say, well, God is sovereign. He controls all things, right? And, 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 you know, it, something, something good happens, right? I did get that job. And we say, oh, God is sovereign and his goodness is demonstrated in his sovereignty as well. We mean his authority when we say his sovereignty. We usually mean it in terms of his control over the events that happens. But in a more specific and more precise way, the fact that God is sovereign means that he is absolute in his rule. Right? So like when we talk about a king and we say, oh, this king is a sovereign, we mean that he is, he is the final authority in that kingdom. And so when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean first and foremost is, yes, he does control all the events in human history, everything that happens. That's true. But he does that because that is his right, his function. That is what he does because he has all authority. He has absolute rule. So power, his all-powerfulness, right? His omnipotence. That refers to his capacity to do whatever he wants. His sovereignty, that is about God's right or his license to do whatever he wants. It's not just that he has the ability to do whatever he wants. He has the right to. That's what it means that he is sovereign, right? He decrees. See, that's what we mean. He, God decrees who rules. God decrees who is an authority. He is the absolute authority. And by absolute authority, we mean that there is no authority higher than him and that he gets to say whatever he wants to say and whatever his will is, that is what is right. Let me put it in more practical terms. If God is the absolute sovereign or he's absolutely in, in reign over us, it means that he has a right to tell us how we have to live. He has the right to tell us what we can eat, where you can live, how you're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to relate to one another, how we're supposed to use words, right? Like everything, how our attitudes need to be shaped, what we choose for ourselves and our, our families and our church, right? Like everything, God has absolute right to tell us this is what you have to do. And the have to is just implied by the fact that he is the absolute authority. Human authority is relative, derivative. It flows from him. It is limited in power and extent and capacities. I'm, I'm a father. But, um, I mean, I, I think I'm still powerful enough to force my will upon each of my children. But if I had to take all four of them, it would just take a little bit longer. Right? I think I'm still powerful enough to, right? But at some point, I may not be. It's not about me imposing my will, because my will, my rule, my, my authority over them is relative. It's derivative, and it should be a reflection of God's authority over me. God's reign and rule and authority is what he is ontologically. He is sovereign. Mine my authority is granted, limited, a stewardship, 
for a period of time. And so that means that I don't just get to say, you do it because I said so. I mean, maybe because I am the earthly authority, there's a little bit of doing it because I said so. But there's also a little bit of saying that I'm not the final authority. I could say because your dad said so. And what I mean by I said so is that your dad loves you and seeks your good and he wants you to do what is good and to think what is good. And that's why I'm guiding you that way. But my temptation is to just say, just shut up and listen. And if, if you are amening that in your heart because you feel like that's a lot of me, I've, there's a lot of shut up and listen, that's, that's an easy button for me to press, then that just shows you how we get even the authority that God has vested to us, even when we know the gospel of Jesus Christ and how good our God is to us, we constantly mess up. God has given human authority for the sake of our flourishing. Here's the evidence of that. Can you read that? There's a lot there. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. This is when God is about to create humankind. And this is what he says, verse 26 of Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Catch that word. It means to rule or reign. It's a term that could be trans translated sovereignty. Let them have dominion, reign, rule, authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from the very beginning, they were to be male and female, co-dominicators, <laughs> rulers, right? Like I was trying to use the word dominion, I don't know. Uh, dominifiers, I don't know, they, they, they're co-rulers that are supposed to rule over the earth. 28, verse 28, God blessed them and he said to them, this is their purpose in the world. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over everything that moves on the earth. God created humanity to be the pinnacle, to be the rulers, right? To have authority over everything he has created. And that's come to some degree, like when we're experimenting on how to grow better plants, right? How to, how to enrich soil, right? How to, how to paint a creative picture or, 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 you know, whatever different things that we do in terms of, we are exercising the authority that God has built into us as those that are to take dominion over the earth. But it all went wrong, right? Just two chapters later, right? Genesis 3, 1 through 6, I put it in the in the, in the words of the serpent. And the reason I did that is because I want you to catch how he emphasizes authority in the temptation that he gives to Eve. It, it is about God's authority and our own authority. God's sovereignty or my sovereignty. I'm going to read to you the actual passage and you will look and see what the part that is highlighted that the serpent says. And verse 6 will tell us what happened after that, right? Verse 1 of Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in verse 6, so then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The fall was an issue of the assertion of authority. The serpent tempted Eve with two thoughts. One, is God's word really reliable? Is his authority absolute, right, over you? And two, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. You usurp authority. You get to dictate what is right and wrong. You get to choose what is good and what is bad. And that is literally the definition of human sin and self-idolatry. We have become gods unto ourselves. Unfortunately, God is still God, right? We have chosen the rebel route. So 
God grants human authority. I think we're kind of getting that, right? And, but secondly, and we'll talk a little bit about the blessing of good authority, of good human authority. And God blesses good authority. Uh, I'm saying it's 3B. I'll read it from uh, verse 3. But this is what um, David says that God has spoken to him by divine revelation. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And this is what God says. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. <clears throat> Good authority, right, fears God. It fears God. In the words of, of, of David's oracle, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God. You notice in Hebrew parallel, right, um, uh, poetic structure, the idea of ruling justly is equivalent to ruling in the fear of God. To rule justly is that Hebrew term sedek that means righteousness. It means that you are ruling in such a way that is defined by righteousness. You are good to them in the fairness that God would have you to be good to them. In the fairness or the righteousness that God would say is righteous or good. You are doing what is right in God's own eyes. And when a ruler, when this king, and this is David saying it for all the kings of David after him, including Solomon. When the king of Israel rules justly over his people, not for personal gain, not, not for manipulation, not to get ahead, not to get others ahead, but to push back still others. Instead of that, if he deals justly with people as God would say is just, he's a good ruler. And then the second part of that, ruling in the fear of God. Good human authority references, right, and respects God in all the authority that they practice. Bad authority references themselves. Bad authority reveres themselves, right? Because their authority is used to glorify themselves. Good authority glorifies the God, right? That is the one in charge. Fear of God is an interesting concept because I don't know about you, but whenever I think about it, I'm always thinking, well, okay, like exactly what does it mean that we should fear the Lord? Because I mean, we know, right? The fear of the Lord is important, Right? The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Like we, should, we should fear the Lord. We'd all agree with that. But for some reason, it's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around it. Interestingly, though, if I said, hey, um, do you struggle with the fear of man? Most of us understand what that means. It means, do we look at human beings, right, with the reverence and the fear, the trepidation that they might not like me or that they, they might be mean to me or they might li not like what I have to say. And so we have difficulty speaking honestly about some things with them. We fear man in the sense that we give them a greater sense of authority over our affections, our, things, our thoughts, our motivations than we should. Well, just flip that around. That's exactly what it means to fear God. It means that he has a place of reverence in our hearts so that we are concerned about how he thinks about us, what, what he thinks about what we want, right? Like, like is he glad with this? Is, is he happy with this? Is, I'm referencing God and revering him at the same time in everything that he does. Good authority flows out of that recognition. Bad authority just kind of drinks in that I'm in charge Shut up and get in line, right? Go get me a sandwich. That's bad authority. Uh, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying necessarily that's, that's wickedness and, you know, and that, you know, that, that deserves an express line to hell or something. I'm saying that you could be sitting on the couch today, right, watching your favorite NFL team. You know, you're having a good time. And then, you know, your kid walks in and you say, hey, kid, get me a sandwich, right? That's not good authority. Does God treat us like that? Like, hey, I'm busy. I'm running the universe. Nam, stupid. Get me a sandwich. He doesn't. Right? You get it? Even in the small expressions of how we flex, right, our authority. Maybe that's an older sibling to younger siblings. I've seen that play out in our household over the decades, right? 
The older kids are always bossing the younger kids around for, yeah, give me a cup of water since you're over there, right? Like you can ask. There's nothing wrong with asking, but it doesn't sound like asking. It sounds like command, right? Good authority flows out of a recognition of the fear of the Lord. What does the Lord think about all of this? Bad authority flows out of, dude, what do I get out of this? Bad authority flows out of pride and self-worth. Here's a good example. This is um, speaking of uh, Uzziah, the king of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 26, this is a, this is a, uh, I give you the second part of verse 15 and verse 16. And it's kind of an interesting thing for us to think about. <clears throat> this is about Uzziah. It says, his fame, Uzziah's fame, spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. God would curse him with leprosy to the day that he dies. But the interesting phrase I want you to catch was that God was marvelously helping him. The word marvelous, right? We might say, oh, you look marvelous, right? But, but marvelous means supernaturally good. God was miraculously like lifting up, like David was talking about, anointing Uzziah, the king of, Ju- of Judah. He was making him strong. And, but when he was strong, verse 16, he grew proud to his destruction. When he grew strong. Guys, if you are good at something, if you're in a position of authority over something, if, if you are, your capacities are clearly talented in terms of your ability to know or to study something, to teach something, to rule something, to govern something, to lead something, watch out. Because when you are strong in your humanness, pride usually grows and you usurp God's authority and whatever good authority should flow from him, right? Good authority flows out of the fear of God you forget to fear God. But that's how good authority should function. Good authority also blesses others. Good authority also blesses others. This is verse 4, and it's poetic and it's beautiful. When one rules justly, the second part of verse 3, over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Three common experiences that most of us understand, like the dawning of the morning sun. We transition from darkness to light, and there's something beautiful about that, right? Um, I think I was uh, uh, um, long out of, I don't know, maybe I was in college the first time I was ever up early enough to see the sunrise, but it's kind of cool, right? Things are dark, and then there's kind of this mellow glow in the east, and all of a sudden, the sun's shining forth. You're like, dude, this is cool. That's the, there's something that is blessed about that. Like, it's another day. Remember, even Orphan Annie said, man, at least you could hope for tomorrow. Right? There's always that hope. And that's what the new day brings to us. This, this darkness to light kind of reality that, 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 that the sun keeps rising. There's reason to have hope. The second thing is like the, it says, uh, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. This is talking about from cold to warmth. Man, this has been really cold lately. And I know because uh, I'm a Southern California human being, I've lived in Southern California uh, the vast majority of my life. I, I cannot, like if it's under, you know, 60, it's like, this is outrageous. Like how, how do we, and some of you guys are from like the, the, the Midwest and from, from Northern states. And you're like, oh man, it gets below. It, Chicago, it gets like, Below like zero. How dare anything get below zero? That's how my, refri- my freezer doesn't get below zero. <laughs> That's weird, right? And so like I might say, man, it is so cold. And it is. To me, relatively speaking, I get it. But it's cold. And when it is cold, the sun shining forth without a cloud in the sky, that warmth, even on a cold, right, snow-laden day, there is something good about the warmth of God's created sun shining down upon us. Common experience of goodness that we experience, right? Or like rain that makes the grass to sprout. It says, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is from like things that are dead and buried to life. You get these experiences, like we're burying, you know, some of you guys, you know, are growing things in your garden, and that's fantastic. You're putting seeds into the ground. They crack open. These dead things, they crack open. 
And then these green things come up. It's, it's a miracle, right? It's a miracle that we can grow things. I love that. God has created a world like that, and the rain is necessary for that. All of these things are things that give life. If the sun doesn't come up, if there's no warmth, if there's no rain, nothing lives. And yet we acknowledge the goodness in all of these things that God has created. And, and God and David, in his vocabulary, in his poetic vocabulary, says this is what good authority looks like. Or maybe better, this is what good authority feels like. It feels like we've come out of darkness to light, from cold to warmth, from dead and buried to life again, right? Good authority it creates opportunities for growth. Good authority and leadership causes those that are under them to flourish. It is the exact opposite of what we often see. Good authority doesn't steal from them. This is what I want from you. This is what I gain from you. You are no longer useful to me. Get out of the way. It gives. It protects. It provides. That's exactly God's authority over us. So it's so weird that we are constantly tempted to use authority that God has given to us for selfish gain. It's the sin nature. It's expressed to us at the end of Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 42. Remember, this is when um, James and John are asking if they can sit at the right and the left of Jesus. And everyone gets upset because they ask, you know, and, and you know, the, the disciples are arguing. Jesus butts in and he says this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's a term that means... They lord it down on them. They make sure that everyone knows who is in charge. And their great ones exercises, exercise authority, again, down upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So, okay, so we have this principle then of what we call servant leadership. But this is not what we mean. We don't mean by servant leadership that, okay, I'm the pastor, I'm a leader in the church, and so what that means is I'm going to do all the cleaning. You need your, I'm going to tie your shoes. You know, you need to tie your shoes well. Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to physically serve. Now, the idea is that his leadership looks like service, like it cares about someone else. What leadership looks like, if it is like God's leadership, Christ's leadership over us, is that it lives and exists as sacrifices for those that are under their care. It looks more like parenthood. And maybe that's why God, as a first designation, calls himself our heavenly father. So that we understand what that looks like, what his good authority looks like. It looks like a parent loving on his kids. It doesn't look like I'm the boss. And it doesn't look like, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of everything. When leaders serve for, for good, they look like Jesus Christ. Look at that last verse. We don't want to miss that. Right? He says, whoever would be great among you, this is what greatness looks like in terms of authority in this life. You must be a servant, and whoever's going to be first among you must be slave of all. And he says, for even the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus' selfless care for the flourishing of others. Good authority sacrifices it causes others to grow in life and flourish. And uh, this one I just give to you. You guys should know Philippians 2, 5, and 8, 5 through 8. We have to have this mind among ourselves that was in Christ, that who though existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the example of good authority that Christ has given to us. Here's five principles. I'm just going to read them and, uh, um, and kind of give you a little bit of them. Um, these are adapted from a book that some of the elders are reading called Authority by Jonathan Lehman. Very good. And uh, um, it's it very loosely adapted because he has totally different titles for these in five chapters. But I, I thought this was helpful the way that I might express it to you. Principle one, and we'll see that we've covered some of these in what we've been talking about. One, good authority, good human authority submits to higher authority. God's authority first, certainly, but to others that have been in authority over them. Good authority 
is good, partly because that individual understands good submission, right? He's teachable. He hears from others. He doesn't reign with the iron hand, but he understands his position that he can bless others and protect others below him, but at the same time that he should hear and be teachable because he is a good submitter when there's authority over him. Principle two, good authority creates life and growth. We just talked about that. It's not seeking groveling service like our earthly pagan masters, but this is about good authority, elders, parents, fathers, leaders, causing growth, causing life. Principle three, good authority humbly seeks wisdom. It's humble. It doesn't promote itself, but it fears the Lord. It references him in everything. I like this statement by Lehman. He says, the more talented the man, the more humility he needs. The longer he serves, the more dangerous his pride can be. That's what we saw in 2 Chronicles 26. He was, he was a good follower of God until he was strong. Then that became his downfall. Principle four, good authority disciplines wisely. This is a, a wonderful, you know, I think, point, and we can't spend any time with it. <laughs> That's my excuse for not having to say too much, right? Um, for parenting in particular, right? Uh, not authoritarianism. I got to just command everything from you. And not permissiveness. I let you do whatever you want. But it governs well. We err on what we fear. And if we fear abusive authority, we're going to lean towards permissiveness. If we fear moral laxity, we're going to lean towards authoritarianism. Oh, man, this kid's going to get loose. I've got to bring the rod, right? If, oh, man, this, this kid, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm worried I'm, I'm going to be too rough on this. I'm going to just let him do it. He'll figure it out. Good authority disciplines with wisdom, wisely, knows when to command, when to counsel, and how to grow in those things. Principle five, good authority sacrifices for others. And we just saw that in Philippians 2, right? And in fact, um, that principle will carry straight into our time in the Lord's table because uh, that's what the Lord's table is about.